0: you guys now <laughs> so it's my pleasure to uh, welcome here today to give the final uh, or seminar for the term uh, to welcome Ben Bowling who is professor of criminology and criminal justice at the Dixon Poon School of Law at King's College London Um Ben works on various aspects to do with policing scholarship and so he'll be talking to us today about some of the most recent work he's been doing. Um, he has, over the course of his career, been advisor to the UK Parliament, Foreign Office, Equality and Human Rights Commission at the European Commission, Interpol and the United Nations. Ben is a founding member of Stopwatch, a charity that works to inform the public about the use of stop- and search powers and to promote fair, effective and accountable policing Um, Ben had circulated a paper ahead of time which hopefully everybody received although I've warned him I suspect a few people will have had time to read Um, but he will be talking uh, to that paper today And just so that I don't forget to tell you, for those of you who want to accompany us afterwards, we do generally go to a pub for a drink. Um, We normally go to the King's Arms, but Julian every week befuddles me by suggesting somewhere else. And so this week he has suggested the Mitre, which is closer because apparently it's too cold to walk to the King's Arms. So we're going to go to the Mitre, which I think is that direction. So if you want to come along, please do join us. But anyway... Over to you,
1: Dan. Thank you very much indeed for that very warm welcome. It's so wonderful to see so many people here on a rather chilly and grey Oxford day. So uh, the title of my talk today is The Politics of Global Policing, and what I'm going to be speaking to is Chapter 9 of the fifth edition of The Politics of the Police, which anybody who will have studied policing uh, up to this point will know is Robert Reiner's um, Sort of monography, textbooky thing. The one of the key, if not the key, um, book on policing in the UK, um, first published in 1985. So, what I plan to do is to say a little bit about the politics of the police and the progress towards the fifth edition, um, and what's new in the 5th edition, and then to speak to the paper, which is, as I say, a chapter in the book, to raise some questions around the definition of global policing, uh, what it constitutes in practice, and some of the particular issues that it throws up in terms of um, democratic accountability of policing. So first, the politics of the police. So, Robert's book... um, it was written in 1984, published in 1985, just as the Police and Criminal Evidence Act um, had been passed. And so for the first time, procedural law uh, had been it was being established in statute, uh, really providing a new framework for the regulation for the governance of the police. It was also a, uh, a time of very significant social conflict. There had been major police riots in 1981... And there were riots again in 1985, and there had been a kind of rumbling, slow riot throughout the very end of the 70s and throughout the 1980s. So the first edition of the Politics of the Police was published at a time of major social conflict with a focus on policing that had not really been the case um, uh, up until uh, that point since... um, the early part of the 20th century, or even sometime in the 19th century. There had been a a, a kind of, uh, what had been described as a sort of golden age of policing um, in the immediate post-war period, which, uh, mythical or otherwise, was clearly not the case by the time we were into the 1980s. So it was a a fractious time in policing. It was the first textbook, or the first attempt to provide a textbook-like book about the police uh, in, 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 I'd say Britain, but really it's about the English police because it doesn't have much to say about Northern Ireland, Scotland or, or, or even Wales. Um, but it was Robert's attempt to bring together all that was written about the police up until that point. And in 1985, Robert says that pretty much everything that was written about the police in England... And most of what had been written about the police in English was included in the bibliography of that book. It was possible to have read everything about the police. That is now impossible, I think. Well, there may be maybe one or two people in the room who have can, can the capacity to do that. But it's, the, the amount of research which is coming out on policing now is so um, extensive that it's, I would say it's actually practically impossible to read everything about the police um, that is even being published at the moment so that was, uh, that was where it sort of started and the, 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 uh, so the second edition came out in one thousand nine hundred and ninety two by that time, there had been some significant changes and the kind of a lot of the political the politics around policing in general had subsided. The conservatives had cooled a little bit on the police um, The third edition came out in two thousand and now moved to Oxford university press from from Harvester. And there were a number of major transformations that were occurring in the the police and also in the study of policing, with some challenges particularly coming in around the the observation that uh, private policing, that policing was much more plural than the the first two editions of the the politics of of the police had really recognised. Policing being provided by a very wide range of different kinds of providers in the the public and in the private sector but by 2000 there was something of a consensus around policing with a big major significant focus on policing as crime control. The 2010 edition, the fourth edition emphasised the importance of understanding police in their social and economic context, particularly the persistence of the entrenchment of social inequality and what Robert identified as um, the emergence of a kind of neoliberal political economy of deregulation and of a kind of um, laissez-faire politics. So that's uh, 2010. Um, I guess about two years ago Robert contacted me and also James Sheptike to ask whether we would be interested in working with him on the fifth edition of the Politics of the Police. um, well, we bit his arm off, which was that sort of thing you, you do when you're offered an opportunity like that to work on this amazing book. Um, and it is an amazing book, and lots of people have written reviews of it and sort of um, commentaries on it over the years. And, and it was a great honour, uh, but there are some significant weaknesses in the the fourth edition, um, despite the recognition of the importance of plural policing. Really, the whole area of privatisation and policing is... It, it, it's, it's talked about in, in, in the previous edition and the, previ- the previous last two editions, but perhaps not to the extent that it was required, given the debates which had really overtaken the field um, in, the early, in the late 1990s and early 2000s. So that was a, a gap which needed to be filled. Less was said about militarisation than perhaps should have been... Um, it tends to focus on the uniformed policing function. Not very much is said about, not, not as much as could be said uh, uh, about the detective function, and less still about high policing, the sort of intelligence-based, sort of covert policing, informers, surveillance, um, intelligence gathering, undercover policing. It's very English. Uh, it's a very English book, um, so much less is said than could be said about the continental model and the origins of understandings of policing that go kind of prior to um, the, the beginning of the 19th century. So the models of, of policing in on the, in continental Europe. Um, very little was said in in previous editions about colonial policing and how the British model travelled overseas. And. Uh, less was said than would be optimal about the emergence of transnational policing and the particular challenges in understanding police work which emerge as the power to police begins to migrate beyond the boundaries of the nation state and what that kind of means for, for domestic policing and also for policing more broadly so that brings us to the chapter itself so what I thought I'd do first of all, just to say something about the core argument of the politics of the police. So the core argument of this book, which has remained consistent throughout all its editions and is very much part of, I suppose, the, the, the education that Sheptiki and I had... Doing our PhDs at London School of Economics um, when Robert was there. And we sort of, you know, we, we took in the politics of the police in a sense with our uh, doctoral mother's milk. Um, it's the core. It's a gross image. <laughs> it's a gross image, sorry. <laughs> um, policing is the aspect of social control that's directed identif- uh, identifying and rectifying conflict and achieved through. Surveillance and the use of legitimate violence or coercive force to impose sanctions. So at the heart of the policing task, then, are two paradoxes. The first, that the use of coercive force or physical violence is a morally dubious means to achieve the goods of peace, order and tranquillity. So... Uh, the way to reduce violence is by, through the use of violence it's paradoxical and the, the resolution of what Robert refers to as the perpetual scandal caused by the deployment of this diabolical power is resolved by the claim that the police represent the democratic will of the people and the rule of law so that use of coercive force, the use of violence is legitimated in, by its rootedness in, in democratic processes The second paradox is that not all that is policing lies with the police. And although the police stand as romantic symbols of crime control and the sources of order and community, in actual fact, those uh, sources of order and safety lie to a large extent beyond the ambit of the police. They lie in the political economy and culture of society. Order is maintained through complex webs of the family, other social institutions, other kinds of policing functions. It's not all about the police. So the politics of the police and a just society should be geared towards enhancing informal social control and minimising the need to resort to police intervention, so that when they do respond to occurrences of crime and disorder, their intervention is understood to be fair, effective. And legitimate. So these assertions give rise to a wide range of questions that are covered in the book, such as the meaning of fairness, effectiveness, and legitimacy, the ways in which the police power can be held accountable to the people that it purports to serve, and about the nature of the political processes that govern policing. So, what we try to do in this particular chapter is to move beyond an exploration of policing in the domestic context uh, in localities to try to understand the globalisation of policing and its implications for the politics of the police in Britain. In 1985, when the politics of the police was first published, its subject was conceived of almost exclusively in domestic terms. The sources of crime and insecurity and disorder were understood to be local And when there was a discussion of travelling criminals, this was usually to refer to uh, urban villains from London and Manchester and and Birmingham travelling out to the shires, what's often referred to today today's county lines. Um, Consequently, most discussions of policing in previous editions were either explicitly or implicitly concerned with local policing, with a limited debate about arguments for and against the creation of a national police force. 35 years on, much has changed, and the policing agenda is now much uh, more evidently transnational, from disrupting organised crime and terrorism, managing mega-events, supporting cultural events, responding to transnational disasters, searching for people missing overseas. The varieties of police work mirror the transnational possibilities of everyday life. And the political responses to the globalization of social ordering have had a profound impact on the architecture and metier of policing, its organizational culture, priorities, and processes. So, what, what I'll, I'll speak about in the next sort of half an hour to 45 minutes is the development of policing agencies that operate in regional and global arenas beyond the nation state, the role of foreign police working overseas the emergence of the overseas liaison officer as a distinct policing specialism and the impact of these developments on debates about national and local police capacity, accountability and control. The simplistic functional explanation for the growth of transnational policing is that criminality is no longer constrained by the boundaries of the nation state. So global cops are needed to chase global robbers. The list of crimes which exemplifies this trend is very long. Transnational organised crime, the trade in toxic waste, drugs, guns, tobacco, stolen artworks and antiquities, endangered species, uh, modern slavery, financial crimes, fraud and money laundering, terrorism, cybercrime, online child exploitation and so on. The global reach of criminality, the argument goes means that the long arm of the law should stretch well beyond local police force boundaries. And there is a kernel of truth to this argument. The 21st century is much more globally connected than any previous area. And you can see this in economic and political and social spheres. We we all know about globalisation. The chapter includes data on intercontinental travel, um, intercontinental movement of goods, services, migration, the growth of the internet, instantaneous communications, the use of computers to enable financial markets, and so on, all of those things clearly mean that the possibilities for transnational crime of various different kinds are more extensive, and so there is, as I say, a a logic to this um, kind of functionalist argument about transnational policing. But we think that the recent expansion of transnational policing is not simply a functional response to transnational organised crime. For a start, transnational policing is not new. Um, The arguments that led uh, to the creation of Interpol and the United Nations' police capacity were first articulated in the 19th century when the moral panics or the folk devils were international anarchism or the white slave trade. Um, a lot of talk about travelling criminals at, um, in the in the 1890s. Moreover, the European colonial project established a global network of policing that was rooted in the metropolis, um, but spread across the British Empire and indeed other empires. So my last empirical work was on the policing of the Caribbean, where most of the Caribbean, uh, the English-speaking Caribbean territories, have a policing model which is a uh, kind of replica, kind of fractal replica of, of the British policing model. Most senior commanders in the West Indies are trained in, um, uh, at UK training centres. They have uniforms. A lot of them are royal police forces, the Royal Barbados Police Force, um, uh, the Royal Saint Vincent and the Grenadines, and so on. And that was a network of policing, which was a transnational network, where all the senior officers were British or sometimes Irish police officers, sometimes from elsewhere in the colonies, and the the local police were drawn from the locality or maybe moved from one island to another. But policing has been transnational, probably even since its very origins. And certainly ideas about policing have travelled around from the middle of the 19th century onwards. So the idea that globalisation... This kind of late modern globalisation has caused transnational policing it just doesn't doesn't add up to it doesn't doesn't withstand scrutiny. In our view, transnational policing is and its growth is better understood as a change as a result of changes in patterns of governance. So at the beginning of the modern period, policing was largely a matter of parochial governance to the offices of the town or village constable and justice of the peace, and its focus was on local crime and disorder. This shifted in the 19th century as the police, along with other branches of government, became more important to the international, inter, internal social order of the modern nation-state, competing in, in the international state system. After World War II, the transnationalization of policing intensified in step with the globalisation of politics, economy and society. If you think about the emergence of the... Uh, just supranational, the transnational institutions which emerged after the, the the Second World War. I think it's actually analytically um, more convincing to think of policing as being in step with the globalization of governance. United Nations and its agencies, um, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, the WTO, World Customs Organizations, and also the growth of regional organizations like the European Union all play a role in the emergence of global and pan-continental policing. Also, non-state actors play a pivotal role in global governance, including domestic and international non-governmental organisations, multinational corporations and financial institutions, which are arguably more powerful and more important than many, if not all, governments in their control of vast, uh, the movement of vast quantities of capital. So understanding globalisation draws attention to the sense that many of the problems facing police organisations operating at any level stem from the consequences of shifting flows of capital, of employment opportunities and of people. And although debates about transnational policing equate the police role with crime control, there are also transnational order maintenance and service functions as there are in domestic policing. The most obvious case is in relation to contributing to public order in post-conflict situations. So in post-conflict situations, um, where, where, for example, in UN missions, the UN blue helmets are followed by UN uh, blue berets, formed police, something like 17,000 police officers working under a United Nations banner in failed and failing states. But another really interesting example, and there's very little work on this, is the police, the transnational policing role in the case of a major nat- natural disaster. So, and this, as I say, there's, I don't think there's any scholarly research, or very little anyway, on the 2004 Asian tsunami, the Boxing Day tsunami, which we think was the largest international police operation in history. With around 700 police officers and staff from 30 countries, um, supported by Interpol. And over a two year period, the police identified more than 3,000 bodies, assisted with the recovery of bodies and repatriation of those, investigated victims' last known movements. So the police role in dealing with sudden death, which is commonplace in the domestic realm, when you think about who do you call, um, it's the police. Not Ghostbusters. Um, it is an element of the role of international liaison officers who take responsibility uh, for dealing with the aftermath of citizens from their countries who die overseas. I don't have time to talk about the kind of the ebb and flow and the, the arguments for and against the kind of globalization thesis, uh, but clearly. Globalisation is not a one-directional, uh, you know, ever-moving uh, flow, as we can see from, you know, two words: Trump, Brexit. I needn't say any more than that.
0: Please don't.
1: Okay, Thank you. So that's the kind of the the, 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 the context. Uh, transnational policing is a growing subfield. It really only began as an academic subject of study in the late 1980s with the work of people like Michael Anderson, Ethan Needleman, John Benyon, and colleagues publishing significant works in the very late 80s and early 1990s. And one of the first observations is that there was by that point evidence of a qualitative shift in the nature of police work and it was clear that there was an, a growing global presence of police officers working outside of the countries that they w- w- would normally work in. And research on airports and seaports, and the regulation of human mobility, so bringing the kind of the wider police family of customs and immigration officers, perhaps siblings and others in security and intelligence services within that, within that uh, within that ambit, began to, began to be clear that there really was an emerging, a growing, uh, 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 a subject of academic study. Uh, Malcolm Anderson said there seems to be quote, a gradual transfer of internal and external security control from the nation state to international institutions. That was an observation in 1995. The US uh, police uh, were studied by Ethan Nadelman published in 1993, I think that was his doctorate and he argued that it wasn't really transnationalisation this was the Americanisation of policing in, within the US sphere of influence starting with Latin America and then heading um, to the East and then to the Middle East, were the kind of an Americanization of techniques and methods of policing um, which were being pioneered and developed right at the very boundaries of what was lawful at that time. The book, the chapter contains a typology of transnational policing which attempts to look at the way in which policing is transforming it uh, at all socio-spatial levels, so you can see the emergence of global institutions at the highest level of uh, socio- high socio-spatial level, um, international. So relationships uh, amongst police from sovereign states, regional, sub-regional, national, and also the uh, the globalisation of local policing. One of the things that we kind of struggle with in the book is uh, how do you can you is it possible to kind of to make an entire book based on the English police really transnational and comparative actually uh, that is actually not possible it it comes through the book but it's it's basically can't be done not not, in a single you know 130,000 word sort of OUP volume it's it will be a much bigger project I think so what we Settled on was trying to understand the impact of transnationalisation on debates around English policing. So that's kind of where we settled. An example I'm sure will be familiar to everybody in the globalisation of local policing is the uh, the Skripal affair. Four fifteen on Sunday, the fourth of March, two thousand and eighteen. Remember, the public called the Wiltshire Police to report that a middle-aged man and a young woman were slumped unconscious on, on a park bench in the centre of Salisbury, a medieval cathedral city in the south of England. The view was perhaps they were just sort of drunk or something had been on drugs. The initial police response revealed that Mr. Sergei Skripal, a former Russian double agent, and his daughter had been poisoned. It was later discovered to be by Novichok, a military-grade nerve agent. Within 24 hours, what had started as a routine call to the local shire constabulary turned into a matter of national and international security. Wiltshire Constabulary was very soon overwhelmed by the task that confronted them and they soon passed operational responsibility to other parts of the British police network, notably the counter-terrorism command of the London Metropolitan Police, but also engaged the Royal Marines, the RAF, the COBRA Emergency Committee of Government, um, MI5, MI6, GCHQ. Subsequent investigation involved crime scene forensic analysis, chemical weapons inspectors, and detective work in the UK and Russia. A rare but not unique example of of the local impact of transnational criminality. The bulk of everyday local global linkage among police officers is much more mundane. The paradigm example of transnational policing concerns drug smuggling. Um, In England, we don't grow so much coca, leaf, um, poppy, and hemp. They grow like weeds in very many parts of the world, and so drugs production, importation, supply, distribution is an inherently transnational business. And even where there is local manufacture, it also tends often to involve um, transnational supply chains. Uh, I wonder what will happen after Brexit. Um, So, whether we're looking at drugs, but also people smuggling and human trafficking, uh, to understand the distribution and supply of narcotic and psychotropic drugs requires a kind of a transnational mindset Um, it needs to be in Maureen Cain's phrase um, uh, indigenous but globally aware and when you talk to domestic uh, drug squad commanders they'll talk about not just what's happening in their locality but it's transnational connectedness and And that was particularly true, I think, in the West Indies, where small islands are transshipment points, and so the drugs are coming from somewhere. They're on island for a short period of time before they leave, usually arriving by small boat, leaving by air. And so this is a a transnational business. The, The Caribbean drug squad commander has... So perhaps three or maybe even four mobile phones, one from the Americans, one from the British, is sort of domestic um, you know local police force, and there's one for his wife and kids or uh, her husband and children, usually men um, and so that kind of uh, the transnationalization um, of policing um, is linked to the transnationalization of the problems facing police in this context um, So that's the globalisation of local policing. At the same time, although the debate around do do we need a national police force in Britain has um, kind of petered out, although I did notice that there was an article um, on the National Crime Agency today which described the chief officer as the most senior officer in British policing, which is usually reserved, has historically been reserved for the... um, the commission of metropolitan police. So maybe something. So maybe that s- signals a, a change. I don't know. Um, so national level policing capacity is developed in many countries alongside the globalisation of local policing, but varies widely across jurisdictions. Um, in the UK, in 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 Britain, um, there's been a gradual accumulation of power in national agencies. So. Uh, most domestic policing is undertaken by the 43 police forces in England and Wales, um, a number of national s- uh, specialist agencies like the British Transport Police, the Ministry Defence Police, and it's a long list of those. There's a really interesting book, if you like, directories and dictionaries, which I do. Um, the Almanac of um, British Policing, and it's just a sort of, it's a, sort of list of all, the, of all the agencies. It's very, very, um, very, very diverse. Um, since the 1990s there's uh, been a building on, on regional crime squads formulated in the 1960s into first of all a national crime squad and a national crime intelligence service these were amalgamated in 2005 to create the serious organized crime agency and then reorganized and renamed the national crime agency in 2013 and that has responsibility for as it says on the tin, serious and organised crime. Um, the impetus for nationalisation comes from a number of sources. First, there's a belief that local police forces lack the capacity and expertise to deal with organized, serious organised criminal activity, and that with transnational connections. And the Wiltshire case is sort of an example of that. So national police forces have dedicated units for <coughs> cybercrime, financial crime... <laughs> on large child exploitation, modern slavery, and so on. Um, second, centralised national hubs have been created to respond to the rapid growth of demands from overseas police requesting information about suspects wanted overseas. So prior to the creation of these national a- uh, units, if you wanted to know whether you're a foreign police organisation, you wanted to know whether a suspect was abroad... Um, by and large, you would have to engage with 43 separate police forces in England and Wales. The, the creation of a—I a... I mean, there is the Interpol network, of course, but essentially what the, one of the key functions of the National Crime Agency is to provide effectively a clearinghouse for requests from overseas, both incoming and, and outgoing. It also intersects with the trend of integrating policing with other law enforcement agencies, So national-level policing creates a crucial linkage with international policing systems, so it's training, development, selection and posting of officers overseas. So whereas once police officers would have expected to work most of their career in one particular organisation or to perhaps have moved from around a couple of local police forces during their career, particularly if they're ambitious and being promoted. But now... um, it would be quite common for police officers to have a posting in a national agency and then gain the skills of what you might call a police diplomat. Um, There's no standard model for national policing hubs, but in all cases their role is to link domestic police agencies within a nation state, link to police forces in other countries, and provide a link to global and regional agencies. So that's the local and the national regional policing agencies so the emergence of uh, regional economic and political blocks has been occurring for some time the Euro- European Union clearly being the most, or well, one of the most advanced of those, perhaps the most advanced so you have Europol which is, uh, emerges in that context but there are similar organisations elsewhere, there's Afripol, Ameripol ASEANopol, Caripol uh, which have emerged in recent years. This also reflects the sense that domestic policing capacity can't respond to the transnationalization of, of crime and insecurity, and so these regional entities are being created to, des- to share information about criminal threats, to develop a strategic response, to bring officers together to develop strategic, tactical and operational capacity. Some regional entities also have shared databases, training programs, conferences, and so on. The European Union can be regarded as one of the most advanced examples of an emerging system of supranational governance in which the sovereignty of individual member states is being pooled in certain spheres. The idea of European police cooperation goes back to the 19th century, the Congresses which eventually led to the creation of Interpol. There were also numerous forms of bilateral police cooperation, exchanges and practices. So, for example, the French Regional Brigade de Tigre of mobile police were established in 1907, which provided an opportunity for the Francophone uh, police officers from Luxembourg to have placements in French units with the idea of developing competences within the French police and policing uh, border zones. Today, transnational police cooperation is an integral part of the European enlargement agenda with the objective to create a common security and justice area, strengthening regional cross-border cooperation between law enforcement agencies and judicial authorities in the fight against organised crime and corruption. That includes networking, mutual legal assistance, the transfer of proceedings, requests for extradition, joint investigation teams, witness protection and so on. I'm tempted to get into the detail of European policing, but perhaps to keep everybody awake, I'll just skip over that a little bit. Um, It's interesting, but complex. Um, Europol, though, worth saying a few words about. Probably the most advanced and ambitious attempt at pan-continental police cooperation, uh, fully integrated into the European Union following a council decision in 2009 Responsible for collecting and disseminating criminal intelligence as well as law enforcement cooperation, has specialist units, including an organized crime centre, the European Cybercrime Centre established in 2013, Counterterrorism Centre established in 2016. Sometimes characterized as the European FBI, the agency has no enforcement powers but exists to enable cooperation among police agencies within the EU. Um, irrespective of where we're looking in terms of the emergence of pan-regional cooperation the preference for informal cooperation, horizontal cooperation amongst police officers is one of the key findings from numerous studies of transnational policing Um, so there's a sort of uh, even where there exist extensive formal uh, transnational policing arrangements uh, police officers tend to find ways of being able to cooperate horizontally and so this kind of raises interesting questions about the nature of, of governance as it moves outside of the, the purview of individual nation states having the capacity to know what their police are doing. A few words about global policing agencies. Interpol and then news a lot just the last week or so or last few weeks. Um, Interpol declares itself to be the world's largest international police organisation the world's only global police organisation and the world's most effective international policing body (laughs) it is without doubt the the leading global policing brand Um, the seeds of Interpol can be found in the latter part of the 19th century which germinated at the first international criminal police congress in Monaco in 1914 and came to fruition in the International Criminal Police Commission in 1929 based on an agreement among 22 European and US police chiefs and headquartered in Vienna. The commission then met annually in Vienna until 1938, 1938 on the eve of World War II when the Nazis assumed control. In 1942, the ICPC fell completely under German control and relocated to Berlin. The post-war rebuilding was led by Belgium and in 1946 the IPCC moved to Paris and then later um, to Lyon. The structure of Interpol has remained remarkably stable um, over the years of its existence. But interestingly it's not a true intergovernmental organisation. An intergovernmental organisation is one which is established by a treaty among nation-states. Interpol is an organisation that was established as an agreement amongst police forces, operating, if you like, below the level of the nation-state. It is being given special status as an intergovernmental organisation, IO, although in its functioning it's actually a transnational network. Its IO status is facilitated by the fact that its structure mirrors that of a typical IO, it has a permanent headquarters in Lyon, a decision-making body, the General Assembly, an administrative body, the General Secretariat, and an Executive Committee. And it runs through national central Bureau which are nested within domestic police forces. So the international NCBs are where, the, if you like, the work of Interpol gets done within local police force But what's crucial is that Interpol has autonomy from the system of states um, because. The police organizations, because of the police organizations that make up its, uh, uh, make up its membership, um, attempts to create uh, an international police force in the late 19th and early 20th century founded on the problem of national sovereignty. It was objected to by national governments who thought it would weaken national sovereignty. But a way that this can be finessed, if you like, is for policing to be seen as something disconnected from politics but it's concerned simply with the technical matter of responding to, to crime. Now, I won't say much more about how Interpol works. Um, another crucial or very interesting UN, uh, global policing agency is the UN Police. So I misspoke earlier. It has about 13,000 police officers from 90 countries deployed in 18 police missions. The UN Police Division as it exists today with ambitious development plans and coordination with Interpol to create quote, a global policing doctrine comes very close to the vision first sketched more than a century ago. Central to understanding transnational policing is the role of the International Liaison Officer or the Overseas Liaison Officer, the OLO. This specialism really emerged first amongst the USA and has been taken up by many uh, European countries and is now something which seems to be happening uh, almost all over the world. So the liaison officers are, uh, Didier Bigo describes them as being like station masters in a, in a, in a, a railway system, directing and shunting information to where it's needed as quickly as possible and they can be um, posted to other countries within a region, particularly in specialist areas such as counter-terrorism or (coughs) organised crime, posted far outside the region, seconded to regional agencies like Europol, or seconded to global agencies such as UNPOL or Interpol. The liaison officer is uh, a kind of police diplomat. Typically, uh, police liaison officers will work out of an overseas embassy or high commission. So where the um, military attache and the trade attache are well-established aspects of the diplomatic mission, um, the law enforcement or the policing attache is now very much a fixture. And so my work on the Caribbean policing, I mean, one of the the groups that I talked to were the the UK liaison officers um, who... Had offices in the, in, 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 the, in the high commissions or embassies, worked, if you like, under the authority of the ambassador, um, could only take action with the authority, enforcement action with the authority of the local police, had some accountability back to their home police force, but the questions of accountability were, were blurred, really, I would say. There's no um, global survey of the number of liaison officers. Um, there's uh, some work by Idini and Yon in 2010 who identified 650 liaison officers in 54 countries. Um, we've done a bit of arithmetic, and uh, there certainly is many more than that uh, today. I mean, certainly, well over a thousand police uh, liaison officers. Um, France, for example, has 130. Australia has 80. South Africa 30. Um, The China Daily reports that the Chinese police deploy 63 liaison officers overseas. And there are also Nordic liaison officers who who work together to represent the Nordic region. Um, So the liaison officers are our first point of contact for visiting police officers. They're clearing houses for information. And they're like the sort of oil and glue of the transnational policing system. Or maybe a a nicer metaphor is the idea of... um, of the contemporary policing system as being like a patchwork quilt this is a shiptiki metaphor um, are patches of different sizes and shape different, different layers and in that metaphor the liaison officer is, is the sort of stitching that is stitching together all the pieces they sit at the margins at the edges of domestic policing but are increasingly tra- central to transnational policing and there are affinities and rivalries amongst officers, they recognise one another as, as part of a sort of a transnational law enforcement elite, um, urbane, often multilingual, understanding about working across languages and cultures, working across different systems, and particularly working in these horizontal trust-based relationships to allow information to flow, uh, to en- enable things to get done. So, what we are seeing is a sort of transnational liaison ships, signs of a new form of public governance that leave open the question of how transnational governance can be held to account by the global commonwealth. So, the question then is what, does this, what are the implications of this for the domestic politics of the police? Questions of accountability and national sovereignty can be answered theoretically by the contention that it's only possible for police officers to use coercive and intrusive powers within their own geographical jurisdiction. You could say the very definition of police power, of state power, the possession of specialist powers to use legitimate coercive force within a given territory implies jurisdictional exclusivity. But there seems to be a bit of a gap here because policing resources are fragmented and therefore national authorities cannot dominate all external relations and poor, poor, small and poor states in particular have difficulties exercising sovereignty. So the sort of decentralized state model in which officers from different countries communicate directly with one another and in formal contexts become um, standard practice. So certainly... The idea that the domestic police would have a monopoly on information, Um, criminal intelligence, simply is unsustainable because this information is flowing relatively freely across transnational boundaries. But what about the... uh, I think it was David Bailey who said, the police are to government as the edge is to the knife. So what about the the kind of cutting edge then of state power, the use of coercive force beyond national boundaries. Well, there clearly are documented instances where overseas police have either carried out or attempted to carry out arrests outside their jurisdiction without involving the local police. The most blatant examples concern the high policing activities concerned with terrorist activities or suspected involvement in terrorist activities. Um... One of the most extraordinary cases is the is the case of Khalid al-Mazri, a, uh, a German citizen of, Le- of um, I believe, Lebanese descent, who was abducted by the Macedonian police in 2003, uh, handed over to the US CIA, taken to the US salt pit, where he was held for four months, uh, tortured, and... Then the US government realised that it was a case of mistaken identity. The al-Masri was a different al-Masri. And so, um, returned him, not returned him, but took him to Albania, where they just dropped him off at the side of the road. Um, In 2012, the European Court of Human Rights determined that al-Masri had been detained unlawfully, tortured and abused, and criticised the Macedonian police for collaborating with the US secret programs um, the US, in the US courts the government, US government claimed state secrets privileged and the case was dismissed there's an alien torts act which protects the US government from activities taken overseas but I think understanding police power requires going beyond the idea of these sort of egregious instances of international police flying in and doing bad things and flying out again um, Police liaison officers don't have formal arrest powers, but they don't need them. They can use coercive powers beyond the tran- beyond the nation state by what you might call remote control or, or, or governing at a distance. They, through lawful routes, they can use available available information and other resources to enable local police officers to undertake arrests on their behalf. It was very interesting watching <coughs> the dynamics in the West Indies between US police and the domestic police the US police were understood to be more powerful better trained, more resources and they didn't need to undertake enforcement activities, they just said over there over there, that's where that's happening Um, so uh, so while the system of accountability has mainly been structured according to national borders, policing is no longer a set of practices embedded in the sovereign nation state. And so we now need to be thinking about a, an accountability structure which should, should apply to all forms of policing including those carried out by intergovernmental and supranational enforcement agencies. And there are some solutions to this but are that actually appears in another chapter so I'm going to bracket that off it'll be available from all good bookshops um, in the spring so to conclude globalisation is reshaping the politics of the police and although there have been interconnections uh, among police officers from different parts of the world since the police emerged as an integral part of the machinery of government in the 19th century there is now a quantitative and qualitative shift From the end of the 20th century, the task of policing that had been seen for 200 years as a domestic matter was transformed into a political and policy issue that was widely perceived to be integral to global governance. So what we try to do in this chapter is to examine how the transnational turn is shaping policing in local, national, regional and global spheres of activity. Global policing agencies have gathered strength in the second half of the 20th century. Um, The idea of an international police force has old roots but only became a reality under the aegis of the United Nations in the 1960s and is now a very extensive policing capacity. Um, Every region of the world now has some form of pan-continental police organisation that provides cooperation, coordination, collaboration amongst numerous policing agencies and a common policing doctrine provides interoperability and joint investigation and enforcement activities across entire continental regions. Debates about the case for and against the National Police Force have petered out, but have really been resolved by a fudge um, in the form of a national policing hub. Like politics, policing is mostly a local matter. And despite the growth of these global regional national police agencies. The overwhelming majority of direct interaction between police and public is with uniformed officers on the roads and highways and less frequently with plainclothes detectives and other specialists. Behind this interaction, however, is a far-reaching change in the nature of police work. Today's street police, through the introduction of information and communications technologies, are now able to check suspect identities using mobile fingerprint readers, facial recognition software, automatic number plate readers, and biometric means that link domestic with international databases. Local policing has been transnationalised, and global policing now reaches deep into local communities. These developments raise profound new questions about the relationship between state and citizen. Observers are critical of the democratic accountability deficit at national and European levels with serious implications for local accountability. Local policing was proposed as the solution to the problems of burglary, theft and interpersonal violence, social disorder in local communities. But what is the role of the domestic police officer when threats to life and to property emanate from transnational organised crime and rogue states? In such circumstances, what kind of response can we expect from the local police and from newly created specialist agencies set up with the goal of keeping us safe? Are we content that the suitable foes of terrorists and transnational organised criminals are the main thing? Could global policing prioritise more pressing threats such as environmental destruction, global warming, corporate crime? Perhaps worldwide policing should be thinking more carefully about its service role. Whatever its aims and objectives, how do we know whether or not international policing agencies are effective or efficient or fair? On what criteria can we judge whether or not the billions that are being spent on global policing is money well spent? Transnational policing is growing in size, resources and ambition, enabled by advances in technology and by new laws and policies that are creating Domestic and local linkages. Increasingly powerful, seen as indispensable domestic and international security and order maintenance. And while local policing is being shaped by global forces linked by national policing hubs into transnational debates and expertise. As the central argument of the book suggests, the paradoxes of policing require a searching analysis of how police power can be held to account and through which. uh, democratic processes the police should be governed. This was never an easy task, never an easy question, even while policing was authorised and delivered in local communities by parish constables. Now that local policing is shaped at least to some extent by global forces, by what means can we be confident that the state's coercive and intrusive powers are deployed for the social good? Thank you.
0: Thank you and um, perfectly timed. So, uh, somebody like to start? Yes.